Hello there, little masters, and welcome back to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where today we're welcoming back to the common room a guest we just couldn't get enough of the first time around. So much so that we're already bringing him back on the show for the second time this season. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First of all, I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark, and I'm here with the Man of the West, who's come back for more wardrobe tips. Oh, 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 ouch, that one hurts, Sean. (laughs) Well, folks, in case you haven't figured it out, and that last little bit might do exactly that, or if you haven't, I don't know, read the title of the episode, today we are welcoming Brian Sibley back to the podcast. If you've been keeping up with us, you know he was one of the many guests we spoke to at Tolkien 2019, back in episode 136. And we said then that we hoped it wouldn't be his last appearance on the show, and he must have felt the same way. But in case you missed his previous appearance, well, go listen to that. But if you did miss it, Brian is a multi-award-winning author, screenwriter, and radio playwright. He's written many books and over 100 hours of radio drama. And he's perhaps best known to you, as our listeners, as the co-writer of the acclaimed 1981 BBC radio dramatization of The Lord of the Rings, as well as the 1992 radio plays of Farmer Giles of Ham, Smith of Wooten Major, Leaf by Niggle, and The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. He's also written more books about Middle-earth and Middle-earth-related media than we could possibly list here, but they include The Lord of the Rings, The Making of the Movie Trilogy, official movie guides for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit trilogies, and a number of collaborations with John Howe, such as the maps of Tolkien's Middle-earth. And he's not just a writer. He's given his voice to his own radio productions and audiobooks, including the audio documentary J.R.R. Tolkien, An Audio Portrait, and even performing the role of the giant in Farmer Giles of Ham, <laughs> uh, not to mention BBC dramatizations of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And speaking of Narnia, he's also written works on many of your other favorite fantasy worlds, including Harry Potter, His Dark Materials, the works of Disney, and, oh, bother. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> and we'll be asking him about everything we have the time for today. You're just looking for an excuse for that Pooh impression. Where anytime, anytime. Anytime. Well, folks, let's stop talking about what we're going to do and start doing it by letting our guests say hello. Brian Sibley, let me say once again, welcome to the Prancing Pony Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. It's great to talk to your listeners and to you, Sean, and you, Alan. It's uh, great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we are going to jump into questions in just a moment. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners that if you want to find out more about any of the works of Brian Sibley that we'll be talking about today, please check out the official library page of our website, theprancingponypodcast.com, and we'll have links there to every book we've mentioned on the show. And there's a lot of other great stuff on our website, too. There's show notes and book links specific to each episode, including a link to Brian's own website and blog. We've got outtakes. We've got Mm -hmm. Prancing Pony Ponderings. We've got a few other little extras there. Yep. You'll also find a link to our new online storefront at teespring.com slash stores slash PPP, where you can find shirts, mugs, stickers, and other great Prancing Pony podcast gear. So please check that out. And now let's go ahead and get to know Brian a little better. Now, in your first appearance with us uh, just a few weeks ago, we asked you the question that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast, when and how you discovered Tolkien's work. You told us that you'd read The Hobbit at 11 or 12, but that you had a little bit of trouble getting into The Lord of the Rings until about 10 years later. After trying to crack the prologue for years, you finally just skipped it and went straight to chapter one and were hooked by the end of that chapter. Tell us a little bit more about that experience. What was it in the first chapter that hooked you? And did you think this might be a work that you'd end up spending so much time with for the rest of your life? Well, I certainly never thought the latter. <laughs> I couldn't possibly <laughs> imagine that. I, I was, as I think I mentioned last time, I was lying in hospital at the time. I wasn't very mm. well. Right. had a duodenal ulcer and uh, mm. I had to lay absolutely still, bed rest. 
And so yeah. a big book was just what I needed. I think really what captured me in that first chapter was just the essence of The Hobbit, what I'd loved about The Hobbit when I'd read it so many years earlier. And I, I think it was just that that homely, parochial mm, feeling mm-hmm. about the Shire, which Tolkien captures so perfectly. Yeah. You, know, I, you know, one of the things that uh, people ask me quite often, what what I do, you may be indeed about to ask me that a little bit later, but uh, <laughs> people sometimes say, people sometimes say, which of the chapters and episodes in The Lord of the Rings did you most enjoy dramatising? Ah, and yeah, yeah. the truth is that the, the episodes I most enjoyed really were all of those ones centred around those intimate moments, the bag end opening, the whole opening of the Shire, the early journey, yeah, and, and, yeah, and, yeah. and those chapters at the end. So I think that's probably what captured me. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just like picking up The Hobbit again. Of, of course, I discovered, as every reader does, that as you carry on reading The Lord of the Rings, of course... The, the the whole tapestry of the story opens up and up oh, yeah. and up and becomes right. more complex and more more deep in, in its essences and so of course by that time I was completely hooked in because the personalities <laughs> yeah. you know those personalities of Frodo and Sam and Gandalf are so strong in those early chapters mm-hmm. that you really can't get anything but caught up in the in the essence of it mm-hmm. absolutely. Well, and now you've been a, a Tolkien fan for many decades, and you've been an active member in organizations like the Tolkien Society. Um, you've seen yeah. a, a handful of different media adaptations appear, including your own. And of course, now we're on the edge of a new one coming out from Amazon. Yeah, that's exciting, isn't it? It, it, is. it is. It, it is. is. We're yeah. looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah. We're, yeah. I, I know we've got a lot of listeners just you know watching all the news, asking us our opinions about the oh, news yeah. and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. People keep asking me whether I'm involved with it. You know, are you? Are you <laughs> And I keep saying not yet in the hope that the message might come through. <laughs> maybe Amazon that. will say, oh, well, yeah, we should hint, probably hint, Amazon, I'm available. They've, yeah, they've, right. they've, they've got Shippy. They don't need me. So. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, you know, I'd love to hear from you, Brian. How how have you seen the fandom change since you first discovered Tolkien's works as mm. a young man? You know, and, and what impact do you think that films and radio adaptations and all this other media have had on that change over time? Well, I think when I first encountered Tolkien fandom, uh, and I was quite early in on the the, the uh, early days of the Tolkien Society, which is well, heaven help us, fifty years ago this year. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I I think my perspective was probably different to the outsiders. Mine was uh, that of a fellow fan, but I think the people outside of that fandom really looked upon it as really rather nerdy and quirky and a little bit kind of off the wall and not really, you know, something to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I find surprising, no, it's not surprising. What I find really uh, interesting and encouraging, actually, is that, you know, within that those 50 years, we've now moved to a point where where in poll after poll, The Lord of the Rings has uh, registered as being one of the great books of the 20th century. Absolutely. Uh, and right. where people now respect Tolkien as a writer in a way that I don't believe they did back then. Mm. Um, I mean, there was yeah. a television documentary made in Britain uh, during uh, Tolkien's lifetime where uh, the, the people presenting the program were, were talking to these slightly hippie undergrads um, mm. wandering around in Oxford. And the whole essence of it was that this is this is a sort of little internal world of people who are just interested in this 
very, very particular piece of literature, but actually not even literature in a way. You know, there, there mm, wasn't that regard yeah. for it. And, right. I, and I think I think partly it's due to the fact that Tolkien, as a writer, was not a novelist. I mean, it's one of the things mm-hmm. I love about the books, and it's also one of the things that's most deeply frustrating if you're trying to uh, <laughs> work with them in, in terms of a, a, a dramatic project, because right. uh, he, he wrote just as a storyteller telling stories for him, to please himself, essentially, I think, and, of course, his children in the early days. Mm-hmm. So uh, he didn't have any of those uh, structures or pressures that the novelist, in inverted commas, has to worry about, or uh, and indeed didn't have a publisher who was going to be breathing down his neck saying, you can't say that, or you must do that, or that's structurally not the way you write a novel. Right. So he just right. wrote in that way. Mm-hmm. But, of course, what you get with that is the immediate of somebody who is telling a story, telling a story just as it comes to him. And I think, you know, I think we really value those kind of books that are told almost extempore. They just come. I mean, Alice in Wonderland uh, is another example, completely different scale, different subject, but Mm -hmm. it's a story that just got told. And it was told in a way where, you know, when Lewis Carroll and the, the three daughters of Dean Little were rowing down the Isis in Oxford, none of them actually knew where that story was going to end when he right. started telling her the story. And and you get that feel very strongly, of course, in The Lord of the Rings, particularly in the mm-hmm. early chapters, certainly the yeah. first half of the book, where right. every everything that happens is happening to the characters and you are discovering it. And, and actually, you kind of suspect, and we now know, that Tolkien was discovering it at exactly the same time. Yeah, and that's that immediacy. It's a real immediacy, which I think um, is, well, for me anyway, one of the most powerful uh, factors about the book. And I think in the early days, people looked at the books and they, they said, oh, well, they're, they're this funny kind of thing that some mm-hmm. young people are interested in. Uh, <laughs> and probably associating it with uh, um, substances which probably people shouldn't be uh, indulging in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it had that reputation, yeah. <laughs> well, yes, quite. But now we've come to a, a position, I think, where we can actually assess it much more as a piece of literature. And of course, people are doing that. There's hundreds of books, thousands oh, of yeah. Yeah. I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, about Tolkien uh, as a writer, not just as a that's right. the, the myth or the films or anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd like to ask a follow-up question to that. You just said that that, that immediacy uh, is, is more prominent in the first half of the book. Do you feel that it loses some of that immediacy as Tolkien gets deeper into the story and kind of maybe as he's getting deeper into the larger world of Middle-earth that he had had in his head for much longer? It, it transitions, I think, Sean. It, it changes into something different, but the progress mm-hmm. of that transition yeah. is mm-hmm. such that you uh, you go with it and you accept it. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things that I find hard about The Hobbit is that kind of sea change from from uh, when you reach the uh, lonely mountain and suddenly everything becomes more heroic and more in- right, ennobled, yeah. and and the the story about the little people that particularly you know Bilbo's story and the the smallness is kind of almost overwhelmed and assumed mm-hmm. in in the bigness of the story um, uh, but I think that never quite happens in the Lord of the Rings for the simple reason that even as the 
the greater story unfolds and you you realize the true stature say of aragorn and the power mm-hmm. of the you know the majesty mm-hmm. of the king and all that it represents and even as the language gets elevated because tolkien's language changes of course through the book yes, quite dramatically yeah. right what you mm-hmm. still have as a touchstone uh, are those other characters you have frodo and sam and, and let's face it gollum who are earthing you back into those characters, and Gandalf too, and Merry and Pippin. So, you know, all of that is is keeping you in the story, which is centered on the people, the characters themselves. The, mm-hmm. the big event, the big events, I don't think ever totally overshadow, however big they get, and you don't get much right. bigger than the, the Battle of Pelennor Fields. But no, So those true. huge events are immediately contrasted with what's going on with Frodo and Sam and Gollum at the crack of doom. So, you know, right. the, the, the big and the huge is, is always rooted in the small and the particular. Uh, that's yeah. why I think it, I right. think it was. But, but the tone does change. Uh, it does, Sean, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. That's a great observation, by the way. And I'm looking forward to kind of observing that in, in the show ourselves, Sean. We'll have to make uh, make note of yeah. that, that. I mean, we've already talked a little bit about that tone change from just even from book one just to book two. Just from book one to book two, oh, yeah. right. Yeah. But I think we'll see more of it even more. It will more continue to progress. Uh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, shifting gears a little bit, we want to talk specifically for a while about the the famous work, the BBC radio dramatization. We've got some okay. questions there. Uh, that's, of course, what our listeners are probably going to know you best for. Sure. So you told us in your last appearance that you pitched The Lord of the Rings to the BBC very early in your career, uh, and you ended up being paired with a more experienced writer, uh, Michael Bakewell, on the project. So what happened then? Writers aren't always that involved throughout the production process, right? Were, were you? What kind of interaction did you have with cast and crew? And, and what was your role during production? Well, my role during production was a bit of a thorn in the flesh of the director. But uh, <laughs> I'll, come, I'll come to that in just a moment. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was very fortunate because I, I had no uh, real expectation that I would ever secure this job. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a kind of mad um, stab in the dark that I thought I might get somebody to say they were interested. And then I ended up being responsible for structuring all 26 half-hour episodes and then for writing 13 of them. And and I may have mentioned this before, but I was inordinately lucky because Michael Bakewell, who, uh, as you say, was a very experienced writer and producer as well, uh, he'd also dramatised War and Peace for the for BBC mm. Radio. Mm-hmm. So he'd okay. got a real grasp on how to handle big books and big yeah. stories. Um, and he t- he was so gracious. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, he's, I say was, Michael was still alive. Uh, but I think that, that perhaps he just saw in this eager young guy, um, something that he thought, well, um, you know, w- whatever happens, he's bringing great enthusiasm to it. And he did me the great courtesy and service of mm. just saying, well, you do what you want, basically. You know, when it came to how we divided up the 26 episodes, uh-huh. uh, and I thought, well, you know, what do we do? Do I do one to 13, and does he do 14 to 26? Uh, and he said, no, just take whichever ones you most want to do. Uh, oh. I think, uh, well, which is a nice, nice offer. Um, <laughs> right. Sure. I was, I was old enough, um, even if not experienced enough, to to know my limitations. And mm. we were talking a moment ago about the Battle of Pelennor Fields, and I had not the faintest idea to work just working in sound as to how to create those kind of scenes. 
just mm, orally. Mm. I didn't know. I had no idea how to go about it. I'd never written anything like that, and I'd no concept of how to set about doing it. So mm. I tried to be sensible. I tried to say, yes, I'd love to do all of that stuff there, some of the best stuff with Gollum, actually. But mm. actually, yeah. that also means I'm going to have to do these great cataclysmic battles and rides mm. and things. And, I, and I'm not going to, yeah. I don't know how to go about it. Um, so I, I really sorted the episodes in a way that gave, well, frankly, the hardest stuff to Michael. And <laughs> <laughs> I took the easy stuff for myself. Um, after, after we'd written it, Michael, of course, being so uh, experienced and, and really having done so much himself, didn't feel the urge to be in the studio every day um mm, uh, mm. i did <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I had done so little and here was one of the biggest things ever going to be recorded yeah, right yeah. and uh, and so i just wanted to be there the whole time uh, and i did become a complete nuisance to the the producer <laughs> <laughs> because she quite rightly and i now understand i've been in many studios since and i still most producers are happy to have me in the studio, but I absolutely behave completely differently because now I always listen and wait until somebody asks me what I think. <laughs> uh, what, I would, what I would do there was, uh, uh, you know, there's a scene unfolding and quite clearly Michael Horton as Gandalf hasn't quite understood a particular line. So there would be a sharp intake of breath uh, from the writer who was sitting immediately behind the producer. <laughs> and she wasn't quite sure whether that was the actor had, or somebody in the studio had um, taken a mm. sharp intake of breath or, no, it was me. Uh, or I would immediately start saying, regardless of the fact they were still recording, I would say, no, no, look, no, it's, no he's pronounced that wrong. That's not how he, and uh, <laughs> frankly, I think it was about seven or eight episodes in and uh, the the tension started to show. Uh, but uh, what I did in the end was I'm going to make this sound as though I had any choice in the matter, which I absolutely <laughs> didn't. I ended up being <laughs> in, the, in the BBC every day that it was being recorded. But I sat in a, a, a green room, another room adjacent. I didn't sit mm. behind the producer's chair, yeah, which was, in yeah. fact, very wise. Um, as I said, <laughs> now, now, <laughs> uh, oh, most, that's great. most recently, when I was working on a dramatization well, a couple of years back now, but uh, about of Watership Down by Richard Adams. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the producer and I sat side by side, and I've learned now that one of the things which is a, a very sharp learning curve as a writer is. If you're working as a writer, you're working in isolation. Uh, mm. And so all the I still do when I'm writing anything, whether it's prose or, or, or a drama, I'm saying the words out loud, either literally out loud, mm -hmm. like I'm talking now, or within my head. And I can yeah. hear those voices. If there's lots of characters, I have my own, as we all do as a reader. Oh, you yeah. know, when you're reading, sure, yeah. you, you, mm -hmm. you have an internal voice that you hear. Um, now, the moment you go into a studio and an actor comes in, first of all, he or she has a completely different voice often to the one that you had in your head. Every now and again, there's mm -hmm. a, a real synchronicity. Horden uh, and Woodthorpe were two examples of voices that were mm -hmm. as close to the, my internal hearing voice uh, as they could get. But other voices... Uh, Robert Stevens as Aragorn, for example, was completely unlike the voice in my head. And it, mm. But it's not just the voice. The actor will read a line uh, and take three or four different actors. They'll all read a line differently oh, yeah. to each exactly. other. 
And right. indeed, if you have an actor like uh, Ian Holm, with whom I was working because he was playing Frodo and, of course, later played Bilbo in the film, mm-hmm. uh, Ian Ian's whole uh, way of approaching acting is that I never give the same performance twice. Mm. So, mm. and and which which is it has to be said not always easy for his fellow actors because every no. time there's a new take, he would do a different give a different reading of the line. Mm. So sometimes wow. you yeah. know in your head, particularly if you've laboured over this for a long time, you absolutely know which word is going to be emphasised by the character. Yeah. When he says what he needs to say, you know, you know where those, <laughs> right. you know where those emphases are going to fall. And of course, right. an actor will read it completely differently. Um, of and I've I've now learned after after some years, I've now <laughs> learned to to listen. And sometimes, if you listen with with really open ears and try not to keep tuning into the the voice in your own head. Sometimes you get some extraordinary surprises, you know, and an actor hmm. suddenly plums a depth in something that you've written that you had absolutely no immediate realization was there. Hmm. Um, so that's that's the difficulty. I, I, and it was a hard learning curve for me because I oh, hadn't man. had the experience. But, you know, it, it's a it's a valuable one because you, you have to learn that your voice uh, as the, the person who's writing it uh, is is only part of this whole team of people that are bringing it together and that involves right. you know, the musicians and the sound people and the sound effects and you know so right. yeah that was that was hard it was hard but mm-hmm. I, I mean at the end of, and there are still moments now when i listen to it where things are wrong you know i'm not going to tell you which <laughs> well, <they> are. <laughs> well scratch that question sean <laughs> yeah. there are things that are, are wrong i mean which are te- absolutely uh, literally wrong like uh, there's a, a line where somehow Aragorn was referred to as King, as it should be, King Alessa, uh, and was weirdly described as King of Alessa. No idea how that of got mm. in there. So there are oh. those kind of there are those kind of mistakes. But yeah. uh, there are still, for me, lines which um, every now and again I think, no, that's not how you say that. That's not right. But by and large, I mean, with a cast like we had, <laughs> it, for me, it was just, uh, and it still is when I hear it now. It's uh, I'm so far away from the the process of having written mm-hmm. it now that right. uh, I, I tend to hear it completely differently now anyway. So, uh, yeah. yeah. And I don't listen to it inordinately often. So, you know, <laughs> when, when, when I meet these fans who say, Oh, I've listened, oh, I've listened to this 20 times. And I go, good grief. Oh, I've, yeah. I've not listened to it half that, you know, so, there we are. Well, and for you, it's probably that, you know, that thing you did in your youth that, uh, you know, yeah. you're so far well, from now. Uh, well, yeah, that's true in a way, except that um, I, I never view it in that in that way because I did go through a period, if I'm honest, uh, I did a lot of things afterwards. You mentioned the Chronicles of Narnia, and I, and I dramatized all seven of those books. And mm-hmm. actually, in, in terms of uh, the amount of work and the length of the project, and I did that project on my own, um, that was actually longer than what I did mm. with The Lord of the Rings, actually, mm, yeah. in, in the whole length of The Lord of the Rings. So it was a much bigger project. And, uh, and other things like the, the, the Gormagast novels of Mervyn Peake, mm. which uh, right. I felt was, I think, was probably one of the finest pieces of work I've done. I don't actually think much about what my work, what the, the worth of my work is. Uh, but I, I do think that there's a, a there was a time when I was really, I think, really wanted to get rid of this label, if I'm totally mm. honest. Mm. Because yeah, yeah. every every time I did anything, people went, 
Ah, and Brian Sibley, who dramatised the well-known BBC, and I used to think, yes, but I've right. done this and I've done that, and it felt <laughs> yeah. second, and it felt second-hand because it mm. wasn't an original thing. Mm-hmm. And I've learned two things now that I've learned that one of the gifts that I had, and I don't know where it came from, but which I've been able to use, has been to try and translate, not translate so much as as, as take a, a, a literary form and make it into something which can be heard and experienced orally mm-hmm. uh, and that ability is itself of some value uh, mm-hmm. and, I, mm-hmm. and I've also realized over the years and it comes home to me every time I go to something like the the celebration of the Tolkien Society's 50th yeah, yeah. this was a work which and it's not down to me it's down to everybody who was involved it's a work that has affected these huge numbers of people you know yeah. a guy yeah. who spoke to me when we were all there up in birmingham and and said to me i had terrific dyslexia problems uh and it was through listening to the radio version that i then started struggling to work my way through reading the book and as a result of it he's now uh, well perfectly established as a writer and somebody who is uh, a a living proof that you know dyslexia doesn't need to hold you back in life Um, and Mm. to think that 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 this production of which I was a small part had any effect on him or the many many other people who've said complimentary things about it to me that's beautiful actually and so I'm I'm now very happy to own that label that Mm. once upon a time bothered me but that may be just because I'm getting so old now that I'm not going to do anything much more (laughs) if I'm much bigger (laughs) so I can just uh, rest on that and say yes yes I love doing that but I did love doing it I bet yeah I bet so I do want to take a step back and talk about the cast a little bit more you've mentioned some of those names already and uh, it it really was a truly impressive cast that was assembled mm-hmm. for that. So this was a 1981 production, and it really showcased a variety of British talents, some who were already established at the time. I know you, you just mentioned uh, Michael Horton, who played Gandalf, uh, Robert Stevens as Aragorn, and then also some actors who were sort of up-and-comers at the time but have gone on to become very well-known. You mentioned yeah, Ian yeah. Holm as Frodo, uh, Bill Nye as Sam. Do you have any favorite stories about the cast, uh, some of these well-known names that you'd like to share? Yeah. Or that you I, can share? <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. share is probably the important yeah. part, right? <laughs> that is slightly, yes. Um, well, yes, I think one of, the, one of the brilliant things that the producer, Jane Morgan, did was to try and find voices. Well, she was adamant at the beginning that she didn't want voices that sounded like they were supposed to be some other kind of creatures. And I think she was Mm. absolutely on the money there because, of course, you know, what Tolkien, once you're into the story, you don't really keep thinking about the fact that, what what the hobbit looks like and his hairy feet and all of the you, right. you're just they are just characters because they are all of them aspects of humanity and, right, and she right. quite wisely i think say in comparison to the uh, the soundtrack of the uh ralph bakshi film where you know oh, they yeah, tried yeah. to give the the hobbits what they thought might be kind of hobbity voices a little bit mm-hmm. um and and she mm-hmm. never did bother with that they had to be real people right and yeah. and I think by choosing Ian, who was was sort of really well, he was an established actor, but was had not perhaps reached the peak of his later career. Um, and and but particularly with the casting of Bill Nye or William Nye, as he was then calling mm, himself, right, right. He, he wasn't Bill back then. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that was that was an inspired piece, and and mm-hmm. his performance 
which uh, seemed to, in rehearsal, I seem to remember, it was just there complete and entire. And, and it never, ever varied. He just somehow got Sam and, and everything that Sam represented. And I think the relationship between him and Ian Holm, who was a, a much more experienced actor, so for Bill, it was very much a, a learning curve too, I think, because he was acting with actors who were, in many ways, uh, giants compared with he, where he was in his own career. Mm-hmm. Um, that he never lost, he never got overpowered by them or overwhelmed by them. Uh, not that they would, you know, set out to do that, but I mean, he was always held yeah. his own in all those scenes. And what he brought was that immense sense of compassion and honesty and mm-hmm. uh, warmth that we what we love Sam for in the book. And he just somehow got it, and and it was there instantly in the voice and in all those relationships and i mean for me i think probably those episodes on on the way up to mount doom uh, mm, which i yes. which i dramatized yeah. those those moments and 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 also in the episodes that michael did which were uh, set in shelob's lair uh, those moments where mm. the relationship between those two uh, it, it comes so so alive and it's so personal because it's just focused on these two small characters against right. overwhelming odds uh, so i think that was brilliant casting and similarly with merry and pippin you know the voices for merry and pippin if i think of the relationship between uh, legolas and gimli uh, played by david collings as legolas he had a light voice it wasn't a, it, mm. it didn't mm-hmm. it didn't sort of set out to be a kind of elf voice it wasn't kind of right. fluting or fairy like but it was a light voice set against douglas livingston's gruff uh, gimli yeah. voice was just perfect and that and that relationship which is another relationship in the in the story that i love so much the way in which their their relationship develops and this strong bond and affection grows up between elf and dwarf all that was i thought magically captured in the story uh, yeah. i suppose if i'm going to tell a story about anybody it would really be about michael horden because mm. the thing about michael uh, was that that he instinctively understood what Gandalf was. I mean, it was just, mm. he just did it. He, he was one of those actors. And I've seen him play a lot of different roles in comedies and dramas and so on. But whatever, whenever he plays a role, somehow he just does it. Uh, and I think there are actors who, who are like that. He always talked about the fact that he only got the part because Sir Ralph Richardson turned it down. Uh, and that was never the case, but it was typical of Michael that he would be so self-effacing as to pretend mm-hmm. that, he, that he only got it because one of the great knights of the English stage at that time, of course, he was knighted himself later, but one right. of the great knights had turned it down. That's how he got the part. But he <laughs> truly never, ever understood what was going on. I mean, he just did not know. And yet somehow when he's talking to Frodo in the, the opening episodes, right. uh, well, to, Bil- to Bilbo, first of all, and then to Frodo about the ring, when those passages are going on and he's bringing out all this history of about what's gone on in Middle-earth in the past and uh, Sauron mm-hmm. and Mordor and all the rest of it, he truly had no idea, but he somehow managed to say all that stuff as <laughs> though it meant, made sense to him. You know, I mean, I don't, mm-hmm. know what the, I don't know what the trick was that he used as an actor, but he said it with such authority and such uh, uh, power that you thought, well, gosh, yes, the one ring to rule them all. Gosh, that sounds frightening. And yet, if you'd asked Michael, he wouldn't have had a clue what it 
really meant. <laughs> he never read. He never read the book. Uh, I mean, there's no re- no obligation on a, an actor who's got who's got a script that why should he necessarily need to read the book? Ian Holm mm-hmm. had read the book. David Legolas had read the book, and uh, several others. And they were often a kind of they, they went back to the book and brought things out from the book. And sometimes they'd say, "Well, you know, it says this in the book. Why is that line not there?" Or how should that be played because I've read that it mm-hmm. says this but for right. Michael it was just here's the script I'll read it I'll do it and, yeah. and of course mm-hmm. because we recorded these over a period of two months uh, he just waited for the next script he, he didn't look ahead well he didn't see them actually because they were being typed up and given to people you know two weeks at a time so uh, he had no idea when he did episode one what he would be doing in episode 26 had no idea <laughs> oh at all Uh, And so, and I have told this story many times, but there was a point when having fallen from the Bridge of Casadoom at the end of uh, that particular episode with the the, the echoing line, fly you falls, as he disappears into the darkness, that he trailed into the producer's booth in the studio and said, uh, Jane, uh, rather concerned, Jane. My agent said I was in um, uh, (laughs) 16 episodes and I seem to have died in episode eight. Uh, and she said, "No, no, it's, it's 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 all right. It's all right, Michael. You're you're resurrected in three episodes' time." And he said, "Oh, splendid, splendid!" <laughs> and uh, and sort of just toddled off. But you know, just presumably in his mind, going, "Oh, right. So I just I'm just resurrected. Oh, it's that resurrection thing. Yes, I'll yeah. do that one. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's uh, number forty three in my book of voices. You know? but, um, but, but nevertheless, when I hear oh, it now." Weird. And I hear it now, and and uh, you know I I love Ian McKellen's film performance, of course. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, you know, in comparison with Ian, who knew the book, read the book, um, was obsessive about the book. In, in comparison to what he was doing necessarily from the script, uh, right. Michael had no such no such kind of help <laughs> given to him. It just <laughs> came from within his own internal brilliance as an actor yeah. you know he just mm-hmm. that's that's what i yeah. am you know, that is just what i am but at the same time he wasn't putting on a a magician voice i mean i think i'm not, I'm not saying i'm not saying that ralph richardson probably wouldn't also have been splendid because he was a very similar actor in that sense that i think he was a totally intuitive actor but i could imagine if uh say john gilgood had got the part for example mm-hmm. john gilgood would have been mm-hmm. Wanting to be, you know, he would have had his images of Prospero and all the other kind of magical entities that he could think of, and he would be bringing all that to it. Where Michael just brought, well, what they all brought, I think, which is why it's endured, which is humanity, you know, regardless of hobbits, dwarves, men, wizards, they all had that kind of humanity. And, uh, and, And I think because a lot of the actors, were very seasoned radio performers. So you had people like James Grout, uh, who, if anybody of your listeners know the uh, the Morse stories that have been filmed by the BBC, you know, the mm-hmm. Inspector Morse uh, oh, yeah. and, the, okay, and yeah. the Endeavour series and uh, those those books. Well, he played in Morse. He was the superintendent policeman. And now he, he was Barlam and Butterbur. And, and he was just perfect. You know, he just brought yeah. to that part, small part, but he just brought that bumbling, 
kind of character, but you love him and you know that even yeah. though he's totally incompetent, he is actually <laughs> he is actually a good guy. He's on the good right. side. You know? right. um, so there were lots of those performers. Peter, Peter Howell, uh, who played Saruman, I thought his performance, which mm-hmm. is small really in comparison with the other parts, but absolutely captured the, uh, the, the kind of... Um, the, the sneering uh, superior quality of mm-hmm. uh, Saruman and the treacherousness of him too. The, the moment where Gandalf confronts him and, and uh, that's another scene I adore where he says, you know, I am now Saruman of many colors. And there's yeah. just that moment. And then Michael Horner's Gandalf says, I preferred white. And uh, <laughs> you know, which I, I love it in the book and I love that. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. those actors brought a, a great, a vast experience of career work to tiny parts often, you know, uh, and in doing so, they fleshed out these little characters that we didn't have time often to do a huge amount with in terms of script because we were trying to compress so much into a small space of time. But, mm-hmm. at, the, but at the same time, they brought to it that authority that they ha- had earned through playing many, many parts across many years, and, and particularly radio actors because as I think I've probably said elsewhere, is that obviously the radio actor has got nothing to work with except their vocal cords. What, yep. you know, if it's not in the voice and how you pace it and say it and the emphasis and the loudness or the softness, if that isn't in your voice, then it's never going to work. It doesn't matter how many films you've made or right. how many stages you've walked across. If you can't bring it all down into that microphone in front of you, then you're lost. Well, that is so true. If I could mention one one final scene just that, that, that yeah, really yeah. impacted, well, it's not one of many, but the one which I think I remember most powerfully because I was looking into the studio through a, a sort of observation window. This is after I'd got kicked out of the studio. <laughs> they moved you out. Yeah. So <laughs> I was pressed up against the glass like a child looking into the Christmas window, you know, peering through my fingers. <laughs> um, but... Uh, but there was, we were on the brink of Mount Doom, uh, well, inside, and this amazing moment in the story where Frodo is weakening and, and, you know, he's about to, he thinks, you know, he's struggling with, is he going to give the ring? Is he going to hand it over? And just at that moment, just before Sam throws himself at Gollum, Gollum seizes Frodo's hand and, of course, bites off the, mm-hmm. the finger with the ring. and. Yep. At that moment, Woodthorpe, and there wasn't much love lost, sadly, between Woodthorpe and Ian Holm. I think Ian found Woodthorpe, I mean, it's a brilliant, brilliant performance that Peter Woodthorpe gave. Yeah, but I think he found it so, so big, uh, and it needed to be big. I think he, he found it uh, perhaps intimidating um, mm. because Ian Holm was a, an actor who dealt in particular uh, small, intimate kind of nuances of the voice. And the Woodthorpe mm-hmm. performance was huge. But Peter seized Ian's hand, I, I mean, across the microphone. They were standing, just standing in the studio at a microphone, and thrust, oh. and thrust his hand into his own mouth oh, uh, as he was saying <laughs> the lines. And I remember that moment vividly and another moment when uh, the same two actors where Frodo quells Gollum by pushing yeah. him down onto the ground, and 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 Ian Holmes seized uh, Woodthorpe by the shoulders and and actually forced him down onto the floor. And I don't <laughs> think it, I don't think it was just to try and stop him uh, seizing the moment with his acting. No, but they they just were so 
they were both so caught up in it that they just instantly right. acted it out, you know. And it, to watch it was extraordinary because there were two grown men and a microphone right. and cables and a completely empty studio, you know, people standing around in, in jeans and jumpers and sneakers. And But suddenly right. you were right in that moment because these two actors were absolutely caught up in it and were living mm. it you know before the microphone and somehow something wow. of that gets captured i think in, in the vocal performance i agree no, absolutely, absolutely yeah no. i think i think those moments really between the the three of them between uh ian holm and and uh, peter woodthorpe and bill nye uh, those are yeah. i think some of my favorites in the entire series and um Agreed. you really do feel it all right. So one more question before we move on to a different uh, a different topic altogether. We understand that you had the help of Christopher Tolkien throughout the project. You sent scripts to him for approval, and he even sent you an audio cassette of him saying some of the names aloud to help with pronunciation. The last time when you were on the show, you told us a little bit about meeting Priscilla. What was it like working with Christopher? Well, Christopher was remote in that sense because we were we were working with him remotely. I mean, he wasn't ever there as part of the uh, the production process. Right. By the time I came to be working on The Lord of the Rings, my understanding of the importance of Christopher Tolkien within the way in which the whole matter of Middle Earth had been put mm -hmm. before readers uh, was such that it, to me it was very, very important that he was involved mm -hmm. in some way. Uh, and yeah. and that's, that's true of everybody else in the production team because obviously if he was able to give his blessing to it, and uh, he, I think he was always rather nervous about doing that in a kind of explicit way. But if there was a, a sense in which he had had an overview of what we were doing, that we weren't going too far off course, mm -hmm. uh, then I, I think everybody thought, well, at least we, that we've got that him on our side and that yeah. won't be a bad yeah. thing. Um, mm -hmm. He was very gracious. I really, I mean, because it is so many years ago, I, I'm finding it rather hard to try and remember very particular things which he sure. might have raised questions about. Um, there were one or two, but they were few, mainly, I think, because uh, we set out to be as faithful as we could be. I mean, we were boringly yeah. faithful to the book, in fact. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, I mean, there, there were no, none of the flights of fancy that, you know, Peter Jackson and other filmmakers and, and adapters right. of the books have, have brought to it. Uh, there was nothing of that kind. Everything that we that I set out to do when I was breaking the book down into episodes was to try and capture as much as I could of the story. But, but right. of course, that meant that there were things that had to go. Famously, of course, Tom Bombadil and the whole yeah, of the yeah. episode, Old Man Willow and the Barrow Whites and so mm -hmm. on. So the, the, but, but there were other episodes that went and other characters that went. I remember, I remember, I remember talking to uh, Michael and saying, there's this character who pops up uh, towards the end called the Prince Imrahil, and, and he mm. doesn't say anything, or I think he has t two or three lines in the book. And right. and we're suddenly going to have to introduce a completely new character. And the character of Arwen, who was an enormous challenge uh, that I don't believe I fully address correctly now. Now I thought, think about it again. But yeah, so Christopher saw the, the breakdown of the episode. So he saw very early on that we were going to make some of those excisions. And mm -hmm. he then looked at, read every episode and there were one or two suggestions that he made, but they were, they were minuscule. He, he was absolutely not sitting on the project, you know, in a critical way at all. And, mm -hmm. and it was a great asset that he made this recording for us, which you mentioned. And, and to have him sitting, and he did everything. He did all the most, all the simple words. So, you know, he did 
Frodo Baggins, uh, the Shire. He did everything that could possibly, just because, Mm -hmm. in my experience, uh, actors, um, well, and and myself too, if I have to read something, if there's three different ways of possibly pronouncing something, you'll find a fourth. You know, so oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, is, and is it Pelennor or Pelennor? You know, th- those kind of mm-hmm. um, interpretations, and knowing that, of course, most readers who read the read the book have their own words uh, in their head. You know, a sound, and that sound approximates it, particularly if they're difficult names. But yeah. you know, is it Kazadum or is it Kazadum? Or you know, th- those mm-hmm. things had to be clear. Yeah. Right. We needed those things to be clear for, for the actors and to keep everybody trying to say it in the same way. I do remember there was a, a couple of instances where I was on the case and saying to the producer, no, no, the X has got that wrong. It's, it's said like this. And she'd say, ah, oh, yes, but the, 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 they're regional characters, aren't they? So there's no, there's no <laughs> guarantee that a dwarf, dwarf doesn't pronounce it differently to the way an elf would pronounce it, which I suppose is fair enough. Oh, interesting point, um, yeah. Uh, but there were times when the actors would cluster. I mean, particularly if it was quotations in Elvish, and and mm-hmm. Robert Stevens as Aragorn had a, a few difficult passages like that, and people yeah. would cluster around this little cassette recorder because we're talking pretty primitive days here. Uh, pressing right. the button, rewind, press the button again, listening to Christopher, and then trying to emulate that pronunciation and get it right. But of wow. course, as you guys know, because it's the same when you're bro- doing anything in broadcasting, you can practice a word or a name over and over and over again. <laughs> but then, but then when you see it coming up in a paragraph, you know, I've done a lot of presenting yes. in my time, and I've I've gone over a name of an actor or a writer or something, and it's difficult, but I've learned it. And then I'm reading the link leading up to it, and I can see it coming up the page. I can see this, yeah. this kind yeah. of thing that almost moving on the page and 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 waving angrily at me knowing that by the time <laughs> I get to that bit of the sentence I won't have remembered how it should be correctly said so that is exactly you know, yeah. all the time so for, for Aragorn having to suddenly you know he could listen to it on the tape but walk walk across to the studio stand at the microphone and then when he had to come and say it of course, it had gone completely out of his head, you know. <laughs> twelve, well, twelve words in Elvish had flown. So, but um, oh, no, it was it was great to have. It was great to know that Christopher uh, had a, an eye and an ear on on what we were doing. And uh, I, well, the, to me, that was that was very important because obviously it was the closest thing we could get to having mm-hmm. Tolkien's uh, eye on it. Although I, I would now shudder to think of how he would have you know how he would have reacted because we know how he reacted to other people's uh, attempts to yeah. dramatize the story I'm right. of that famous right. letter where he's just eviscerating the zimmerman script <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. and i know that he would have been totally intolerant of uh, of the fact that i had meshed the stories together after the breaking of the fellowship because yeah. that was one of his prime uh, arguments that you had to he- read the story and hear the story in that in that order of sequence and, mm-hmm, and that right. he'd written it in um but you know you and i know and most people who would have listened to it would have known that's not how you create something dramatically um exactly. so we, right. we would have had a terrible row about that i'm sure and uh, but so but christopher didn't <laughs> christopher didn't choose to have that argument so that was that was that was very cool 
very that's good. Great. That's great. great. Yeah. yeah, I can almost hear him saying the canons of narrative art cannot be completely different. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good stuff. All right. Well, I'd like to go ahead and, and move on to uh, some of your other radio work now. In 1992, you went back to adapting Tolkien for radio with Tales from the Perilous Realm. Now, that's a set of works that you brought together for the first time. Uh, Farmer Giles oh. of Ham, Smith of Wooten Major, Leaf by Niggle, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. These are all smaller works. They're known to people like us, certainly, who are very plugged into Tolkien fandom, but yeah. not as well known among mainstream radio audiences. I'd like to hear a little bit about what it was like to get that project off the ground with the BBC. Yeah, I... I was very, very keen to do it. And the, and the reason I was so keen to do it was because, just to go back in time, we were talking about mm -hmm. the fact that there was, there was this huge gap between when I read The Hobbit and when I read The Lord of the Rings. Right. During that gap, I did read uh, Farmer Giles of Ham. I read Smith & Wooten Major when it was first published. Um, mm -hmm. As it came out, I read it. Uh, I discovered Tree and Leaf and therefore read Leaf by Niggle, which I loved. Mm -hmm. I bought a copy of the history of Tom Bombadil, uh, and in, and indeed sent it to Tolkien and asked him to sign it, which he which he did. So these were uh -huh. books that were be beloved by me. Mm -hmm. um, and although yes, they are smaller, so much smaller in scope and essence than uh, the Lord of the Rings or even the Hobbit, but what they have is each of them has something very very particular about Tolkien and his understanding of the fairy world particularly and other worlds altogether. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that it was important to me. And, and to be fair, the BBC were looking for the possibility of something to, let's put it crudely, cash in on the fact that the Lord of the Rings had been already a success. Mm. Uh, mm. And it seemed to me perfect because it also gave me the opportunity to try and redress the fact that the the Bombadil episodes had been cut out. Now, you know, right. I've taken a lot of criticism over that from people, uh, well, mostly from fans because most other people, you know, anybody who hadn't read the book, of course, didn't know that it wasn't there. And uh, and, <laughs> and, and uh, probably at the outrage of some of your listeners, I'm going to say that it, actually if you excise those chapters, except that you've got the whole business of where they uh, the hobbits get hold of their blades if you don't right. go to the Barrowites. Mm -hmm. um, that apart from that, actually, it can be lifted out and you hardly notice the transition. Uh, for me, it was very simple because once you've got the the black riders on their tail, that is where the drama is. There's you know, there's mm -hmm. no question that the moment mm -hmm. they're chasing the hobbits that the story has to just pursue that is the story you're telling. And if there'd been a digression, even though the digression has in itself threats from Old Man Willow and so on, there is always that threat of, is there something outside the window of Tom Bombadil's house that is looming yeah. and threatening? Right. If it could just get past the the aura of Tom and Goldberry, and, you know, it could attack them, but they're safe in there. So, yeah, that's all great stuff. And, of course, the moment they're out of Tom's house, they're immediately going wrong again with the Barrow White. But, right. but, but even so, although those threats, they're not the same threat as this unknown, mysterious a uh, bunch of writers who are pursuing them, which you know is what's the engine that's driving the story. Right. But it was lovely to be able to revisit it and and to use some of the uh, the, the poems from the Adventures of Tom Bombadil mm -hmm. to weave into it. And and I was very lucky because I had an actor called Ian Hogg 
who played Tom Bombadil. And, uh, you know, Tom mm-hmm. is a difficult character. Yeah, I mean, to have an actor having to say, hey, dull, merry, dull, merry, dull, my darling, all that, those kind of lines, and make them sound remotely convincing is <laughs> <it's laughs> quite a challenge. But Ian Hogg yeah. captured that. He yeah. was great. My only sadness about that whole episode was that we couldn't get back uh, Ian Homer and Bill Nye and the other hobbits, so that we mm-hmm. could have we could have really made it like an episode that could later actually have been dropped back into the the series, mm, you know, like right, a, a yeah. kind of uh, an outtake. Plug it in, yeah, yeah, that would have been nice, but we couldn't do that. But um, and I, I love beyond loving uh, Leaf by Niggle. It's one of my mm. favorite favorite stories anywhere, yeah. um, and, and 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 I love it for several reasons. One of which is that despite all his protestations about never liking allegory uh, <laughs> and uh, you know never writing allegory and and hating it wherever he found it that he he writes one of the most ex- extraordinarily, exquisitely beautiful allegories uh, about life yeah. and death and 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 of course infused with his own Catholic beliefs about mm-hmm. afterlife. Um, right. and it is just it is just perfection and the characterizations are so Tolkien, the, both uh, Niggle and his neighbor, uh, they are just perfectly captured. So yeah. I love that story and that was that was special to me. And I also wanted to do Farmer Giles because, you know, in a way it was a very significant uh, stage in Tolkien's writing development. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and yeah. there were other things linked into it, like the fact that it was illustrated by Pauline Baines and then, right. you know, Pauline Baines, who became a, a, a long lifelong friend well the rest the end of her life friend of mine mm. that she was the person who had illustrated that and then she had created the the cover to that book which with the the trees overarching middle earth the big fat paperback of of the yeah. lord of the rings mm-hmm. which had suckered me into the story so you know there were lots of reasons for wanting to do that and it was just fun to play the giant as well Right, particularly as uh, Christopher Dives was being played by Stephen Thorne, who'd been the voice of Treebeard, another great voice in in the in the Lord of the Rings series, um, and I was able to play a couple of scenes with him as the drag as him as the dragon and he as the giant. So that was that was fun as well. But um, mm. and and of course Brian Blessed, Rick Brian yes. Blessed, oh, yes. enormous Brian Blessed, um, as, as Farmer <laughs> Giles. You know, he had Absolutely to stand. Perfect. He had to yeah. stand about six feet away from the microphone, otherwise he would have been <laughs> Audio engineer holding their their headphones <laughs> like away from their head. Absolutely, yeah. So that was a. I loved that project, and um, I I have almost got over the bitterness of uh, Harper Collins having purloined the title later. For, <laughs> <laughs> for our listeners who don't know that the title "Tales from the Perilous Realm" didn't first come in a book; it came. <laughs> From this radio dramatization, so when you pick up that volume, you have Brian Sibley to thank. That's right. Well, but to be to be fair, I mean, in in the same book as Leaf by Niggle, Tree and Leaf, the book's called, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. In the essay on fairy fairy stories, which is the first part of of, of Tree and Leaf. Um, Tolkien talks about the elements of where that title comes from because he talks about fairy mm-hmm. being a perilous realm. Right, uh, yes. and, and so I took that perilous realm idea and thought, well, all of these stories 
in some sense or other, have something magical about them. Uh, it's not all the same kind of magic, but there is, uh, there's quite clearly fairy magic in Smith of Wooden Major. Lovely little story. There's, mm-hmm. there's dragons and therefore, um, you know, the magic of, of dragons in, in Farmer Giles. And there's mm-hmm. certainly magic in, in the Tom Bombadil episodes. Uh, and then a very kind of spiritual magic in a way in, in Leaf by Niggle. So I, I thought, yes, these are all of them tales that come from this place of fairy, which Tolkien understood and not just understood, but actually spoke about so clearly. If anybody doesn't understand about fairy tales and what fairy tales really mean, and are they, you know, those little sprites with wings that, you know, think of <laughs> yeah. like J.M. Barry's Tinkerbell, uh, or are they something... Uh, you know how do they fit with the world of the elves that we know yeah. of in the Lord of the Rings? Then right. just read the the opening. You don't even read the whole of it, but just read the opening pages of on fairy stories, and you get a complete understanding of how Tolkien saw the world of fairy and its importance intellectually and and in the literary sense to us. And yeah. uh, so that's why that's where the title came from. But it would have been nice if they just said to me, "Hey Brian, do you mind if we use that title?" But you know. <laughs> no. The answer I'm would have almost, been yes. Yeah. I'm almost over it. I'm nearly over it. It's all right. Okay. <laughs> it's know, it's just a really testament to how great of a title it was. You know, I had therapy. I had therapy. It's all <laughs> I'm much better. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Of course, about on fairy stories. Episode one, we actually did on fairy stories because we agree with you that it is crucial that if you can get an understanding of that, mm-hmm. uh, it really helps you kind of get hold what, right. of where Tolkien coming from for the entire legendarium. So. Yeah, and, and what I love about that collection of stories that you that yeah. you brought together is that each one of them, as you said a moment ago, Brian, each one of them represents sort of a different facet of that idea right. of fairy, and uh, yeah. and it's all very different, and it all sort of comes together in Lord of the Rings. But each one of these is is sort of a a little slice of that. Yeah, a different approach. Mm-hmm. And of course, and of course, having Michael Horden to hold them all together as as a narrator exactly. through all of them was was very important to me, and uh, yeah, uh, that, that was lovely. That's perfect. And that actually segues nicely into my next question. Uh, as, as sweeping and epic as the Lord of the Rings radio series is, there's a, an intimacy, a, an approachability to these dramatizations that I really found wonderful. And I've only recently discovered them within the last couple of years. Partly it's the fact that they're smaller productions of these shorter stories, but it's also the way they're presented. You've got these stories, like you said, narrated by Tolkien, played by Michael Horton, who was Gandalf in Lord of the Rings but then acted by the likes of Brian Blessed and, and Alfred Molina and Niggle. Mm-hmm. They're touching, they're funny, they're frankly everything they need to be. Do you think this intimacy is a quality of the stories themselves, or did you maybe set out with a different perspective, an attempt to make these lesser-known works a little bit more familiar, a little bit more approachable? Yeah, I wanted to do that, and I, I think I, I saw that all of them, I mean, the, the one with the biggest dramatic arch is in a way is farmer giles of ham but yeah. at the same, even as you're reading that story you know that you're reading something which is not uh, a dramatic story about a dragon that's ever going to sort of kill anybody and destroy you know it, it, the whole thing is a kind of pastiche it's almost like a like a pantomime in a way of mm. of a story about an, an, a knight who's actually not a very good knight anyway and isn't really a knight in the first place <laughs> and, and a dragon who i mean short of a Kenneth Graham's reluctant dragon. I can't think of you know a, a dragon who is less dragony really than Christopher uh, <laughs> Dives. So yes, I wanted to capture that that smallness, and in, in and in a way, I think it was an opportunity to to say that 
it, for all the huge scope of the Lord of the Rings, which is you know vast when you look at the the whole structuring of that of the story that it that unfolds within it, that Tolkien was also incredibly adept at telling small stories in a very intimate uh, and close way. I mean, I, we didn't, I haven't done them, and and they weren't part of it. But you know, the the Father Christmas letters yeah. yes. also come to my mind as being uh, each very one singly being a little has its own little story arch. He absolutely right. understood how to tell an intimate story, uh, and and they feel to me like stories that are told. Um, around the fire or perhaps at the burden baby you know yeah. Uh, yeah. over a pint uh, and and there's something about there's a, there's a there's an entire there's a intimate as you say but there's also uh, a kind of completion about their completeness that they don't need anything more and that made them i think in a way easy to to dramatize or easier to dramatize because the story was yeah. self-contained yeah 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 that's great well, also included in the CD collection of Tales from the Perilous Realm is J.R.R. Tolkien, an audio portrait. Now, this was a, a later project of yours. This was a 2001 compilation of radio and TV archive material about Tolkien. Um, it includes audio interviews with Tolkien himself, as well as yeah. appearances by Tom Shippey, Alan Lee, Humphrey Carpenter, Rainer Unwin, and more, all assembled into a sort of audio documentary narrated by you. Now, how did this project come together? and I'd love to know what it was like to put together a story of Tolkien's life out of a mix of new and old audio footage. You know, did you uh, assemble an outline first or do you look at the material available and build a story out of that? I'm trying to remember. I love jigsaws. I love puzzles of all mm. kinds. And, and this falls into that category. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was approached with the idea by the BBC and they said, we've got a, a mass of this archive stuff. Uh, then they sent me lots and lots of i think it was actually in those days on audio cassettes i don't think we were even mm. on disc i think it was audio cassette and lots of these these cassettes were of course immediately i started listening to them i realized they were completely different in their quality their quality of recording uh the quality of what they had been preserved because quite often there were only bits of interviews or they you know somebody mm. had had said at the end of an interview, well, we must keep all those those bits that Tolkien said, uh, but the context of the of the program wasn't necessarily around it, so I oh. had just stray bits and pieces. So mm. the first thing I did was listen to everything, uh, and then I logged it all. I remember hours and well days actually of sitting with a uh, with notebooks where I wrote down you know the in word like you might do with uh, people don't need to do it nowadays because everything's digital, but I used to write down in dot dot colon rather uh and then the opening line and then i'd have a stopwatch i'd record it and then measure the time and write down the time and then i would say what it was about talking talking about the war or whatever it was uh and then having got all these bits and pieces this jigsaw if you like which is just in the form of a series of notes at that point I then sat down and thought, how do I arrange this as a story? Because obviously I've got to hold it all together and there's a lot of things here which nobody's telling me. So there's got to be some narrative flow where I'm talking about where he was born and mm. and uh, then then being able to segue into him saying that he remembers uh, what Christmas was for him in South Africa, that kind of mm. thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it was, it was bliss because I really enjoyed it because I've always, as a, as, as a broadcaster, I've done lots of, 
radio features and documentaries, the one thing I've always enjoyed is that thing of assembling lots of stuff, whether it's mm. my own interviews or stuff from else, other sources, and then trying to tell a story through that. So uh, it's a pretty long story because, of course, it's a double, um, I don't know what it is in terms of a CD, but at the time when it was first issued, it was two cassettes in a, in a box. So yeah, so there's, there's a lot of it, and it's it's probably not something you really want to sit down and listen right the way through to. I think it's probably a bit of a hard listen. but um, and, and also, I wanted to include as much of it as I could. So that was like, right. it became a kind of challenge. So there, there were points where I think, no, there's no way I can use this bit of Humphrey Carpenter. It's t- it doesn't fit anywhere in here. And then yeah. I think, yeah, but, but he's saying something really that I want to use there. So I had to mm-hmm. sort of construct reasons for using it. So right. it was a kind of, it was a kind of a, a well, it was a puzzle to put together. Um, but I, I, what I want, why I was pleased about doing it, I think, is that uh, because it's got some content with people, well, Tolkien himself, obviously, as you say, but people like Rainer Unwin, that there was input from people who were like first-hand witnesses yeah, right. to the story, mm-hmm. as well as people like you know, like Tom, who is obviously a commentator, and, and his perspective was also important. And there were other critics and observers with, within that, that material. But I also wanted it to try and have you know some sense of... I remember as a, as a young man, I bought the... the uh, gramophone recordings of Tolkien reading parts of his works um, in that very idiosyncratic way. He'd obviously got the pipe in his mouth. So, you know, you kept losing some (laughs) of the words, right? Quite sure. And he always spoke and read at this kind of slightly breakneck speed uh, where where words fell off the end of the tape recorder. You couldn't actually hear what the word was. Um, But I found them so intriguing. And they, for me, there was a a disc. I don't know whether uh, you had it in the States, but there was a disc which was uh, on one side, it was Donald Swan's settings of the the poems Mm. Um, yeah. sung by a man called William Elvin. But on the other side, there was Tolkien reading some of the verses. Yes. Uh, and for me, when I heard Tolkien going, Ash, no, brother, look, brother, brother, you know, there was suddenly something about hearing that voice, yeah. uh, the voice of the man that wrote it, actually speaking these these lines. Right. So I, want, I wanted to include as much of, of him as I possibly could. I don't know how it stands up. I haven't heard it for... Oh, I don't know, years. So I've no idea whether it, it makes any kind of sense or it's got any value at all nowadays. But I think I, I'm actually about important. halfway through it myself. I've, I've been listening all to right. it. I finally ripped the CDs onto a digital format so I could put it right. on my phone and listen. Yeah. And right. uh, I've been enjoying the heck out of it, frankly. It's great. Right. But yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to them. I'm kind of a hardcore Tolkien nerd, though. So, you know. Well, I, I, and, that, I, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I enjoyed audience. it. I enjoyed it a lot. I, I listened to it straight through and you know maybe one or two sittings uh even though it's two yeah. discs and uh even for somebody who knows tolkien's life it was it was just a lot of fun to listen to and uh mm-hmm. man just to hear some of the voices that uh that were captured was fantastic yeah yeah it really is amazing well you know we'd love to talk about your radio work all day but we also know yeah. that we, we don't do three-hour episodes with our guests because we like our guests uh so we want to <laughs> we're going to transition into something else uh we we also want to talk about your books about the peter jackson films and You've written several behind-the-scenes accounts of the making of Peter Jackson's films. The Lord of the Rings official movie guide came out in 2001, and then the Lord of the Rings making of the movie trilogy in 2002. You had the biography of Peter Jackson that came out back in 06, and even books on the Hobbit films as they were coming out. Assuming you've gotten to know Peter Jackson quite well, how did you first get involved with him and Fran Walsh? Did they reach out to you early in their development of the project, or were you brought on later to 
kind of chronicle the production? I think it was a piece of fortuosity, really, because you see, Peter knew the radio dramatizations really well. Um, yeah. he'd, he'd heard them as a young man. He had the audio cassettes. I mean, he didn't hear them when they were first broadcast because he's, he's too young to have heard them. <laughs> well, yeah. but, he, mm-hmm. but he had the audio cassettes and he listened to them uh, on his journey uh, from Wellington to uh, going up to Auckland where he was going to college uh, on a coach uh-huh. journey. And um, it was when he first heard them. And so I think for him, uh, the, the telling, the radio telling, I think it's true that he heard them before he read the books. I think mm. that that was very important to his way in which he got into the books. Right. So there was a, a absolute synchronicity in the sense that he wanted very much to find uh, a part for Ian Holm because Ian's performance as Frodo had been so important to his understanding mm. of the book when he'd heard it. Um, and obviously there was no way that Ian could now play Frodo again. Well, no. But, right. um, but he, he could play Bilbo. So that's why that piece of casting happened. But the other element was I think that uh, it became very early it became clear very early on that there was going to be the need to have some, let's put it vulgarly, uh, tie-in books. You know, there was going to be that case. Sure. And, and, yeah. and they'd signed up a deal with HarperCollins, and HarperCollins were the publishers, of course, of Alan Lee's work and John Howe's work. And I'd right. already at that point written a series of books about the maps of Middle-earth or started yeah. to write that series with John, uh, where, well, I mean, writing them is a bit of a, a uh, an extravagant claim, really, because, in fact, I provided a, really little more than a gazetteer of what those different places represented that John then depicted in drawings. Um, but anyway, we worked together, and I loved doing those little books, and they were rather sweet, and I liked them. Um, so they were also part of P- the stuff that Peter was gathering around him when he was doing his pre-planning for The, the Hobbit, which, of course, I say The Hobbit because he was originally going to do The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. And so he was gathering all these books and map books and so on. So, um, in fact, I saw a kind of pitch film uh, years later that he had made to try and sell the idea of the film. And there was a, a shot which ranged across a whole bunch of books um, as as then printed, I mean, obviously now there'd be a zillion more, but uh, right. and there were there was the map of the Hobbit map which I'd done with John, and I remember thinking, uh, and then sometime later when I was talking to John um, for one of the books, uh, and John said, well, you know, this is where it started. It started with our our front door. It was very gracious of him to include me in oh, anything yeah. to do with that. That drawing which John made for the cover of that book is very much the influence for the door which was built yeah. for the set of mm. of uh, Bilbo in, in and That's Frodo right. in right. in Lord of the Rings. So um, that I was in on the inside, as it were. And so when the conversation started about well, who might who might we get to write the books, the making of books, and my name was put forward. And Peter, mm-hmm. obviously knowing my name and knowing my involvement with Middle Earth was very happy with that. And and so I 
again, I think rather like the original Lord of the Rings, it was a very lucky break that I got. If um, luck you call it. <laughs> well, I do call it luck. And I tell you why I call it luck, because, and this doesn't necessarily apply to The Hobbit without, I don't want to diss The Hobbit, but the Lord of the Rings was a completely different production. I, I, was, I was really blessed because I got an opportunity, like everybody associated with the project, to work with a film company in New Line Cinema who really understood the importance of involving people in a very real sense. Yeah. And, and by mm-hmm. that, I mean that I had access all parts. I wish I'd had better and longer access to Peter because Peter was enormously elusive, as I'm sure. anybody who ever, anybody worked on the project will tell you how hard it was to get time with Peter. Right, but, right. But I could go anywhere I wanted. Nobody, you know, I just could wander around, wet a workshop, the sets. Nobody, there was no no go area. There was nowhere where anybody said to me, I had no minder saying, no, you can't talk to them, or this is, I want to sit in on the interview you do with this special effects artist or that makeup artist or that costume designer. I was just left entirely to my own resources. Wow. Uh, and that was, that was bliss. And I've never yeah. had that. I've done making of books about other films, The Golden Compass, the Harry Potter books never had that that level of access or that level of involvement. But myself mm. and uh, Jane Johnson, who was of course one of uh, uh, Tolkien's editors, uh, and writing as Jude Fisher, also wrote tie-in books with the, the Lord of the Rings. That Jane and I had uh, a level of access which most writers who uh, write about movies would envy beyond envy envy them you know it mm. was just amazing so mm. when for example the film got its first preview at the Cannes Film Festival uh, we were flown down uh, of course so were many press people but we were flown down and were given a level of access where we at, at the place where we went when we weren't doing interviews or researching or whatever was the same green room that all the casts were sitting in so mm. you know we and we just that's how it was i remember going to uh paris for the premiere of the two towers the the european premiere and mm. i happened to be in the four seasons hotel i was meeting richard taylor with whom i developed a, a really close friendship with, with him and tanya and we were going off to I think going to a fantasy bookshop, which Richard went to and then carried out so many books. And only after he'd bought them all, he suddenly realized he was somehow going to have to get them back on a plane to New Zealand afterwards. <laughs> uh, so that's why I was there meeting him. Happened to bump into Dominic Monaghan, whose birthday it was that day. And, and Dom uh-huh. said, oh, you know, you're coming to my birthday party tonight, aren't you? They were having a party at a restaurant. Uh, and I said, well, you know, I haven't been, no, you're here. No, I know you just come, come. So, you know, I'm then at a party for a member of the cast seated between Christopher Lee and, uh, Gita, his wife on one side and Richard on the other, uh, and was treated as though I was just part of the whole company. And in a sense that gave me, I think with one particular book, which is the one which is called The Lord of the Rings, The Making of the Movie Trilogy, which mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. is the best thing I wrote about the films. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Because yeah. I had that level of intimacy uh, with anybody and nobody nobody said at any point, well, we don't want that in the book or I don't like that or we'd rather you didn't talk to X or if you speak to Y, you can only ask this and that and so on. <laughs> it was just anything, go anywhere, do whatever I wanted. I, I mean, the opening of that book, 
and I'm really fond of it, was that I was sitting, this was just before the premiere of the first film, and we were all in the Dorchester Hotel just prior to the cast going off to walk down the red carpet. And and I write in the opening uh, of the book about how a member of the, the New Line Cinema is, is schooling everybody on the, how they are to behave on the red carpet. And, mm. uh, uh, and everybody's being told, you know, this is going to be crowds and crowds and you've, you've all got to get into the theatre and we've got to watch this film at two hours, whatever it was. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we haven't got much time. And there was Christopher Lee sitting there and saying, yes, now I've been done many, many of these premieres. And if you take my advice, <laughs> None of you, none of you will stop and sign anything. You know, smile nicely and wave, but don't stop and sign because if you start signing, we'll be there all night. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> anyway, the, instru- the instructions went on and on and on, and uh, the more and more of this and more and more of that. And then right at the end, Ian Homer was sitting there and hadn't said anything. Um, there was a sort of pause in the conversation. Everybody was sort of taking this in the, the taxis and where they had to get out of the taxis and where they had to do and what they had to where they had to go. And then there was this just pause. And then Ian Holmes said very very quietly, "And the rehearsal is when." <laughs> there was no rehearsal. It was like it's all going to happen in about an hour's time. So, right. <laughs> so, and I had those moments, and you know, I can't imagine now, and it certainly wasn't the case with no. the Hobbit. I can't imagine a film company that would have allowed me to uh, use a sequence like that to open a book, mm-hmm. um, because you know it, it doesn't fit with what right. you know, the, the kind of the media packaging of a film. But right. for, for New line, um, partly through Mark Odesky, for whom I had the most enormous respect, and Barry Osborne, the producer, oh, yeah, with whom, yeah. both of whom I had a really good friendship, that they just saw me as being part of the process of bringing yeah. this film not to the screen but to the the, the public. Absolutely. So uh, that was like that was lucky, and you know I loved it. I enjoyed being. I loved being in New Zealand. I loved the people there. I loved all the opportunities it gave me to do that. Um, the Hobbit was more stressful because Warner Brothers didn't provide yeah. the same kind of ambience for people to work with, you know. But uh, And, of course, I met all the guys who were doing the, the, uh, the backup videos and yeah. CD, uh, uh, video discs and things. Mm-hmm. So then I found myself commentating on some of those and being interviewed on others uh, or some of them i would be the person who was sitting in a in a hotel in london interviewing after the the films were made ian mckellen or christopher lee at length about you know with somebody in los angeles and an earpiece saying um ask him about x y and z you know um <laughs> and, interviews that are even longer than the interviews that we're having you know i mean they were like three hour three hour interviews with christopher lee or ian mckellen um, wow. which are fairly how, how do we get one of those i know right <laughs> uh, well uh, yeah, good question <laughs> oh goodness yeah. things our listeners would like for 500 alex right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i'm yeah. sure well, you know, Brian, when we talked to you last time in Birmingham, you mentioned, and you were talking about the radio series at the time, you talked about the idea that when a team is working on a project, no one involved ever really knows whether they're making something that's going to endure while they're making mm. it. Yeah. Mm. The Lord of the Rings movies were a huge production. Does that does that hold true for a big production like that as well? Did, did they know they were making something big or, or was there... 
Was there an ambition that they were making something big? I'm not sure they did. I, I think that the moment in Cannes, I remember going to the the screening of the 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 sequence that they'd chosen to show, which was pretty much the whole of the Minds of Moria sequence, uh, but it was topped and tailed by uh, a f- some shots of Gandalf arriving in the Shire at the beginning for the unexpected party, or the long-awaited yeah. party, I should say. Mm-hmm. And I think that I remember coming out of that, I remember the Olympia Theatre in Cannes kind of erupting at the end of that 20-minute, uh, I think it was, screening, mm-hmm. and just realising, I think everybody in that theatre knew this is something which yeah. is marked with greatness. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that uh, Jane and I, Jane Johnson and I, actually sensed it a little earlier than that because we were taken, before we started work on anything to do with the, the tie-in books, we were taken to a cinema in Soho and shown a different piece of footage. And it was a clip which included various elements and it ended with the chase to Bucklebury Ferry and, and yeah. stopped just short of, so you didn't know. Well, they, I think they, they, they get onto this kind of raft that floats away and that's how it ended with the, the Black Riders kind of rearing up on the bank. And, and right. Jane and I, uh, and we've both been in our own ways, devotees of Tolkien and his work for such a long time. We both came out and, and knew, I think we looked at each other and we just said, this is going to be something. We just knew that there was something that had been captured, even in the what we'd seen was probably no more than 10 or 12 minutes at, at uh-huh. most of the film. And it was kind of odd scenes, in, unrelated necessarily. Uh, and But we just knew there was something, this here was something which was going to be fantastic. And certainly yeah. the, the screening at Cannes made that absolutely known. Mm-hmm. I mean, my one disappointment of, initially was that the first book, which I wrote, of course, was written without any access to pretty much anything because oh, wow. there was very, <laughs> very, very, very little at that point. Uh, that and indeed, sense, it was, yeah. I mean, it had to be written it, it, so far in advance. They were, they hadn't even uh, really finished editing the film. And it was, and that mm. book was written before the, the footage had been edited together. I mean, I wrote it in the December of the, the year before oh, wow. the film came wow. out. Okay. Yeah. So I was working from... Uh, bits of information, bits of interview that have been gathered together, but it was very, very piecemeal. And, and really, the book really wasn't, uh, it's, it's hardly in depth. It was really a lot of glossy pictures <laughs> and a bit of text <laughs> to hold it together. The next book, the, the making of book, is one that I'm, I'm fondest of. And of course, the yeah. third book, which I never got around to writing because I was taken off those books in order mm. to write, write the biography. And that became an all-consuming kind of monster, which uh, yeah, was sure. incredibly, yeah. incredibly difficult because Peter was never where I wanted him to be. I remember <laughs> flying to New Zealand, <laughs> and uh, I, I arrived in Wellington. I was jet-lagged, and uh, the next day, Peter's, uh, Peter's assistant said, well, yeah, I said, when, when do I see Pete? And she said, no, you can't see Pete. He's just flying off to London. No! To <laughs> After the flight all the way to, oh, that's brutal. To, to, to supervise the music recording. Um, right. Well, it, it wasn't disaster because what it meant was that I was able, because this was for the biography, so oh, okay. it meant that I, I spent three or four weeks where I was 
meeting all his young fr- friends that he'd been youngsters when they were yeah. young people working together, the, the fans of his, um, and a lot of the people who were still there working on Lord of the Rings. So I got right. a load of That's other great. material, which mm-hmm. was, was great. But then I came back to London, and I think I had one interview with him after a recording session with Howard Shaw, uh, and uh, and then he was back in New Zealand. So, in fact, most of the, most of the interviews for the biography were done either late, and you, you guys understand this because you operate oh, yes. in the same the time shift, um, yeah, so yeah. it would either be very, very early in the morning, my time, not great first thing in the morning, or it would be very <laughs> early in the morning, Pete's time, right. or it would be at the end of his day of working, filming, right. uh, oh, right. and yeah. when he's, you know, really tired. Up for 16 hours, and, and right, he just, exactly. right. So it was it was quite stressful for both of us actually. Yeah. But um, it, there's a lot of I think in that book in the biography I think there's a, a huge amount in there which is telling the the real kind of the the amazing story of how the project ever came about, which is mm. it's kind of got forgotten by most people now, but is is a fantastic story of the journey of from this idea that he had of why don't I do a fantasy film. Actually, why don't I do the fantasy film? Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the ultimate one, one right. right? Exactly. And then actually succeeding in getting that done and bringing all these people on board uh, when he was at that time really only known as a as a rather oddball director of a really yeah, a kind of film, yeah. yeah the kind of films that you wouldn't immediately say yeah they recommend themselves to be the kind of films no. that would guarantee a director for the Lord of the Rings right so right. Uh, you know I, I I'm proud of I'm proud of that book and because it, it has that story at its heart and uh, yeah. the, the one thing I wish we'd been able to do which we started doing but we've we're, that it will never be done now. But we did start working together on a kind of diary of the uh, a filmmaker's diary because Peter kept a very uh, clear day-by-day logged, a day-by-day schedule of every shot that he made. Mm. Uh, and we wow. recorded hours and hours of interviews about that. And the idea was going to be to tell, you know, the the... The, I mean, obviously a lot of stories about the filming are told within the book, but, but actually sure. to to tell the whole structure of it but um uh, things everything was overtaken by other stuff and right um, it's um it, it will never see the light of day now but there's a lot of interviews stashed up somewhere so. mm. yeah <laughs> maybe, maybe for maybe the uh, 50th anniversary edition of the film though somebody will dig out those archives there you go. Yeah, well i don't know i don't think i'll be around 50 years of the film but... no I, it'll, it'll be like <laughs> you going through the tolkien audio archives <laughs> kind of thinking. Somebody somebody's gonna it. Look at this. It's on this on this round object. What is this? Oh, it's a compact disc. Remember when those were a thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Some great stuff. Well, before we go, I want to ask you about your new Christmas book. After all, this episode is going to come out at the beginning of December. And oh, your new book is called you. Joseph and the Three Gifts, an Angel's Story. Yeah. And it was uh, released in September this year. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. I was in Venice last Christmas. Uh-huh. Uh, it's a city I really love. Yeah. Um, passionate, passionate about the city. And I've been trying for probably the last, oh, I don't know, four or five years uh, to write a book about Venice. Now, the thing is that there are so many books about Venice that the, mm-hmm. the, the world doesn't really need another book about Venice. <laughs> okay. uh, you know, there are books about the history of it. There are books about the architecture. There are books, right. uh, there are sure. cookery books and f- photographic books. And, and there are, of course, many novels set in, in Venice as well. Mm-hmm. So there's plenty sure. of literature 
miniature of Venice. It doesn't need another contribution from me. Um, but I kept, <laughs> but I decided that I had a over the years that I've been there with my partner. Um, we've we've built up a. A, quite a catalogue of, of photographs of the place. Mm. Uh, and I was also came across what I thought was a way of approaching it. And that was to do a Venice from A to Z, but not a guidebook because there are so many of those. Um, right. it, but but the, So it wouldn't be from A for Academia, one of the museums there, to right. uh, Z for Zattery, which is a, a particular stretch of walkway along beside one of the canals uh, okay. but it would actually it would actually be about items and things that you might find in venice so it might be about people and dogs or it might be about uh bottles of grappa in windows or it might be about clocks or it might be about mm. bells it might be about fog or mist or high tide so it would be a series of of little essays really and i had been toying with it and last Christmas, I thought, yeah, I'm really going to knuckle down and do this while I'm here. Just write the odd bit every now and again. And I did write a couple of odd bits and pieces. But then uh-huh. suddenly this story came into my head um, and literally in a piece, absolutely uh, given, as it were, um, uh, which has never happened to me, I was going to say before or since, but there hasn't been much time since, but certainly not before. Uh, and the idea really was prompted by the fact that I'd gone to a, an art exhibition where there was an amazing tapestry by a, a, a an artist called Edward Byrne Jones, and it's a, a, a run of the mill, though it's very beautiful. Uh, a, a picture showing the adoration of the Magi. So there are the three wise men bending, stooping, bowing before mm. Mary and the baby, and there's an angel floating in midair, and the, and it's a very very detailed picture. And over mm. on the left hand side of this picture, there is this old man who's coming along with a, a little hatchet and a bundle of kindling, which he's obviously been cutting in the woods that are behind in order to build some kind of a fire. But he's right on the edge of the picture. And I started looking at other religious paintings and, of course, you know, the Christmas cards that we all get, which show some of those paintings or modern interpretations. And there's always mm-hmm. a picture of this character, Joseph, somewhere in this mix in the stable with the ox and the ass and the shepherds and the wise men and so on. But he's this marginal character who doesn't seem to have really, we don't know what his role is. He's not the father of the child. We know that because, you know, he's a right. surrogate father. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about this as though the gospel is a gospel, if you see what I mean. Um, okay. And I started thinking, well, what is this character? What was it like to be this character, having this particular burden placed upon him? Uh, and how did he react? I mean, this ordinary carpenter who's suddenly finding that he's he's got to deal with all of this rather you know, heavy kind of unknown stuff falling around right, him. Right. Um, and, and then the second question, which was, what happened to this these three gifts, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh? What role did they have afterwards? What did they do with them? Did they take them to Egypt when they fled mm-hmm. into Egypt? Did right. they bring them back again? Did they sell them, give them away? <laughs> what did they do? <laughs> uh, so those these questions just kept niggling around in my mind uh, about a month across about a month and then just one day in venice i woke up and i just had this story and i knew uh, it was going to be told by the voice of the archangel gabriel and it was going to tell us about joseph and the story of the three gifts and unlike most 
of the interpretations, the legends, the myths about um, uh, Joseph, uh, most of which really decide that he was probably in his 60s when he married Mary. So quite reasonably, he would have shuffled off this mortal coil somewhere around long long before Jesus was an adult and was uh, beginning his ministry. Mm -hmm. So in my thought, I thought, well, there's no indication. We've no idea how old he is. So supposing he isn't that old, supposing Mary is... 13, 14, 15. She was, by all Certainly accounts, young. Yeah. young. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but supposing he's not that much older, supposing he's actually late 20s, early 30s, yeah. he's still much older than her, uh, mm-hmm. still a big age gap, but he's old enough, uh, or young enough rather, to still mm-hmm. be alive in another 30 years' time. Right. So that's the thinking. And so the story, although it begins in the way that you might expect a story about Christmas to begin, right. uh, it actually goes right the way through to the passion of Easter, and mm. Joseph has his own role to play in that. Oh, wow. In my story, in my in my story, yeah, 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 sure. Um, so that's how it, came. it was a real, and for me, it was one of the most. I don't want to make it sound too mystical, but it was a real uh, curiosity in 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 my life. In that, I came back with this story fully written, fully formed. Hmm. Uh, and I thought, I've no idea if it's any good. I've no idea what to do with it. And I happen to know a retired bishop, which is a useful thing to use. Yeah, yeah, that would be. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so uh, I said to a dear retired bishop, I said, will you read this? And uh, he, he read it and really liked it and said, okay. um, he, he said, you know, maybe you should put some of this in. And what about that? And there were a few things like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, good point. And, and then he sent me an email and said, well, why don't you try my publisher? Because uh, he, oh, he's written oh, a well. lot of very, very academic books, actually. Sure. Um, uh, but he had a publisher, and he said they publish gift books, and, you know, they might be interested. Who knows? Why don't yeah. you try? Uh, mm. So I thought, yeah, well, rather like asking whether I could do The Lord of the Rings, I thought, yeah, why not? So I sent the, <laughs> the manuscript off and just said, um, my friend Bishop Peter said, you might be interested in this. I don't know whether you are. And they wrote back very politely and said that obviously Googled me, found out who I was and said, oh, yes, of course, we know who you are. uh, Absolutely. uh, Thank you very much for submitting it to us. We we probably need a couple of weeks to be able to think about it and read it and think about it. If that's all right, are you happy to wait that? And of course, I was going, (laughs) well, I'm not doing anything else for the next three months. So yes, uh, take your time, please. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Uh, and replied to that but then quite i didn't wait two weeks the following day they emailed me again and said we've read it we want to do that we want it to come out this christmas and Mm, uh it's great uh we're gonna do it and so it was you know it was uh to me it's been a a, it's about gifts but it is all it was also to me a kind of a gift uh Mm. people will make of it what they make of it but for me it's something that just came and it's become something which I didn't expect it to be. So that's nice. Great. That's yeah. wonderful. That's, great. that's really, really wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Well, finally, I want to ask what's next for Brian Sibley? Any big projects in the oh. works or any projects that are on your must do list? Besides the Venice book, I guess. <laughs> well, yes, <I'm> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, yeah, got it. Um, well, I started, um, but I got sidetracked um, last year by. Um, also, apart from the story about Joseph, uh, I wrote a making of book about a, a film which Disney are releasing, I think in April, uh, called Artemis Fowl. It's a series oh, of yeah. books by a writer called Owen Colfer. You may right. know of them. Wonderful, yeah. magical do, stories. Yeah. And Disney have been making a film, but the film 
Uh, and I always worry but when I hear stories about films going into delayed time because it usually means there's something somewhere along the line that's not quite right. Mm-hmm. Um, the film should have come out last September. Um, I mean, the September just gone is what I mean. Right, it's right, now right. coming out next. Now it's coming out in April next year, allegedly. Um, mm. I've written the book. I have a copy of the book. If the film doesn't happen, it may be the only copy of the book in the world. <laughs> I don't know. Very rare, very uh, valuable. Very piece. Rare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as my partner would say, it's not signed, which makes it even rarer. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I don't know whether. But I, at the time, I was working at the time I worked on that I was kind of taken off another project which I'm doing for Disney which is editing a book of Walt Disney's letters and I've got to get back into that book Um, and uh, I've done about a quarter of the book and it's a fascinating insight into a man who I I mean we didn't we haven't touched on it but I've written Mm -hmm. quite a lot about Disney and Disney films Mm -hmm. and the Disney studio and uh, for me it's been a a real well, a new perspective on a man that I know a lot about and have read and you know uh, written quite a bit about, um, yeah. but a completely different perspective because these are his letters to, mm-hmm. uh, well, to everybody, to the stars he worked with, to artists, mm-hmm. to politicians, uh, and masses of letters to children. And the letters to children are, are in themselves just oh, fantastic man. because yeah. he obviously just engaged with kids on a very, very particular and special way. So yeah. that's that's the next book i've got to do um other than that i'm not really sure finish the venice book uh and i don't know i'm wondering whether gabriel my my angel i wonder whether he might come back and tell me some more stories oh, i'm not maybe. sure I'm, 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 I'm waiting i'm just saying that out loud now gabriel <laughs> there you go well whatever the case it sounds like we've got some things to look forward to so I that's gonna so. be great I hope yeah so. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us, Brian. I am so glad we were able to get you back on the show for a full episode. Thanks for giving us and our listeners so much of your time today. We want you to know how much we appreciate it, and we would be happy to have you back on the show at any time. So please consider this a standing invitation. Thank you. I accept it willingly. And it's been a joy to talk with you both uh, and, and through you both to your listeners. So thanks so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brian. And folks listening at home, thank you for joining us as well. We hope you'll join us again next week. But until then, we want you to remember that the talk continues all night long at the Prancing Pony. That's right. We've always got lots of discussion happening in our social media spaces. At our Common Room on Facebook, you'll find comments, questions, corrections, and more on every episode, as well as updates from us throughout the week. Just look for the Prancing Pony podcast on Facebook and click the like and follow buttons. And now we have another Common Room over on Reddit. You can find great discussions there at r slash prancingponypod. And as always, you can find us on Twitter and on Instagram with the handle at PrancingPonyPod. So follow us wherever you might be. And if you like us, share us on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, wherever you can find Tolkien fans. And if you really want to let the world know your feelings about us, give us a review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more visible our podcast is. That helps others find us and this great community of Tolkien fans we've built together. Before we wrap up, just a quick word from our friends at Mythgard. If you enjoy discussing fantasy and sci-fi stories, the Mythgard Institute is for you. MythGuard offers a variety of free programs focused on the study and appreciation of speculative fiction. MythGuard Academy is a weekly book club led by Dr. Corey Olson, the Tolkien professor, to discuss works like the History of Middle-Earth series and Ursula K. Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea. The Silmarillion Film Project is an ongoing collaborative discussion about an entirely theoretical TV adaptation of Tolkien's Legendarium. And then there's the MythGuard Movie Club. They organize panel discussions about classic and new-release fantasy and sci-fi films. 
So check out all of the free programs available at MythGuard.org. And finally, folks, if you'd like access to exclusive content like our postscripts for every episode, quarterly specials, uh, Prancing Pony Podcast swag, and more, check out patreon.com slash prancingponypod to find out how you can become a part of the fellowship of the podcast. For now, though, folks, that is going to wrap it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. But please be sure to join us again next time when we welcome some of our patrons to join us here in the virtual studio to put us on the spot in our quarterly questions after nightfall. That is always a lot of fun, occasionally painful for us. and oh, usually, usually, yeah. Usually. And also usually full of unexpected twists and turns. You are not going to want to miss it. No. And as always, we want to give a very special thank you to our patrons at the Kirdan's Contribution Tier. That's DeMay in Alaska, James in Virginia, Tamson in Minnesota, Emily in Texas, Chad in Texas, Lance in New Jersey, Paul in Colorado, Jerry in Texas, Bruce in California, and Mario in Utah. Thank you all so very much. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Prancing Pony Podcast. Subscribe to the show through iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And one last thing as always, don't forget to send your questions and comments to Barlaman at theprancingponypodcast.com. Barlaman's not always punctual with the mail, but we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And your question or comment may be featured on an upcoming show. Folks, this has been far too short a time to spend among such excellent and admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends.